You're listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Ruth chapter 3. Uh, Ruth chapter 3 is where we will spend our time uh, together this morning. If you are new with us, uh, if this is your first time worshiping with us, let me just tell you how excited I am uh, that you have chosen to worship with us um, here at Central. We, it is our, always our hope and our goal uh, to make much of Jesus on Sundays and through everything that we do. And so I uh, hope that you have seen that today. Uh, Ruth chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. As you turn there, uh, I want you to think about this question. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? What would you do? What would you try? What would you attempt? How would you live if you knew that whatever you did, whatever you tried, whatever you attempted, you could not fail? Uh, Maybe another way to think of it or to ask that question is, what would you do for the glory of God if you you knew you could not fail? If we wanted to baptize it or sanctify it a little bit, what would you do for the glory of God if you knew that you could not fail? Now, I've been asked that question a few times uh, throughout my life, and uh, the answer changes based on the season. The answer changes based on uh, what I'm going through or what I'm experiencing, but it's kind of a fun question to ask and a fun question to think about. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? And you know, when we look here at the book of Ruth, we've been studying this book over uh, the last several weeks, and um, it feels like uh, as we've read and studied Ruth chapter one and Ruth chapter two, uh, it feels like uh, Ruth and Naomi, they, they keep wanting to get in their own ways, but the Lord just kind of seems to bail them out every time. Right? It feels like the Lord is just constantly um, showing up for them and they aren't even having to try. It's almost like they're stumbling into the goodness of God. It's almost like they're stumbling into God's faithfulness. And no matter what they do or what they try, they uh, just seem to uh, be succeeding or, or seem to be uh, coming through okay. Now, as we look at Ruth chapter one and Ruth chapter two, what has happened is Naomi and Ruth, they haven't really had to try much and God is proving himself faithful. They haven't tried to do much and God keeps showing up. But as we look here at Ruth chapter three, things begin to change. In Ruth chapter three, we see this plan that Naomi devises for Ruth to carry out. And we see how Boaz is going to respond to that plan. And in this, in this scene from the story of Ruth, where we see Naomi planning and Ruth acting and Boaz responding, we see how the Lord uses and guides and provides in our plans uh, and in uh, the things that we do in the way that we live our life. And so as we look here at Ruth chapter three, we're gonna see this truth, that God's sovereignty is not an excuse for our laziness. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for our laziness. It might be easy to just sit back and think, well, God is sovereign, and that means that God is in control, that God's providence is good. And because God is sovereign and because his providence rules and reigns and wins the day, well, that means that I can just sit back and I can just let things ride and he's gonna work things out of the way that they should go. But what we see here in Ruth 3 is that God's providence is not an excuse for Ruth and Naomi to be lazy. Instead, God's sovereignty and God's providence gives them the confidence that they need to execute the plan that he has laid out before them. And so as we look here at Ruth 3, uh, we're going to see what this looks like and how does this turn. So look at me here at Ruth chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read the entire chapter. Uh, it's 18 verses. Let me invite you to stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in Ruth chapter 3. Uh, starting in verse 1, the Spirit says to us this, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. 
Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, and when he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have blessed, you've made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known the woman came to the threshing floor. And she said, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it is true and that it is good and that it speaks to us. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now through it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. As we look here at the the book of Ruth, as we we look here at Ruth chapter 3, we're going to see some principles that we can pull out of this passage for uh, how the Lord responds when we seek to honor him. But before we dive in, we need to be clear about something. Uh, kind of a, a word of warning. So uh, Ruth is a narrative. That is Ruth's a story. R- Ruth is telling the story uh, of a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. So what this means is that the book of Ruth as narrative, it is descriptive, not prescriptive. So what that means is that as we read the book of Ruth, uh, the, the author, the narrator here is describing what has happened, but he's not necessarily prescribing it for us. And so as we read the book of Ruth and as we study uh, other narrative passages, what we need to remember is that we can pull out principles of how the Lord works, but these principles are, are often like Proverbs. So the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, uh, are, is a collection of sayings that are generally true, but not always true. And so as we study this passage, as we study narrative, what we need to remember is that the principles that we pull out are generally true, but there may be exceptions to what we see, right? So we shouldn't read this passage and assume, well, this is how the Lord is always going to work. No, what we're seeing is we're seeing how the Lord works in this situation, and that sets a pattern for what we can expect as we move forward. So look with me here at Ruth chapter three, and we see this, when we seek to honor God, he guides our plans, When we seek to honor God, he guides our plans. I wonder how many of us would be able to admit that our plans aren't always perfect. And our plans aren't always fail-proof. They're not always foolproof, and yet God can still use them. We've seen God working through tragedy and through bitterness and through all of these things as we've studied the book of Ruth. If you remember back to Ruth 1, Ruth 1 is filled with tragedy and heartache. It's filled with famine, it's filled with suffering, it's filled with a bitter Naomi. But then in Ruth 2, things begin to change and we see provision and we see joy and we see happiness and we see the Lord beginning to work in ways that neither Naomi nor Ruth could have imagined. Now Ruth 3, things have changed. 
right? Ruth or Naomi has moved from being bitter because the Lord has brought her back empty to being joyful and pleased because all that she has seen the Lord do in chapter two. Now in Ruth three, it begins with this Naomi who was bitter but is now joyful, devising a plan. Look at verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, being Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? See, the harvest is over. At the end of Ruth chapter two, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and and read Ruth chapter two. But you would see at the end of Ruth chapter two, where we're told that Ruth stays in the field, gleaning with Boaz, their kinsman redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, gleaning in his field, not just for a day, it's not just once or twice, but we get this picture, we get this idea that it's for weeks, potentially even stretching into months. And so uh, through these weeks and, and through these potential months, Ruth has been working in the field from sunup to sundown. She's been gleaning leftover barley, leftover grain. She's been walking and working behind Boaz's reapers, behind his men working in the field. This wasn't easy work. This was difficult work. And so Naomi says, should I not seek rest for you? Because remember, Ruth is gleaning in the field, not just to provide for herself, but also to provide for Naomi, her mother-in-law. And so Naomi says, should I not seek rest for you? That it may go well with you? Now, Naomi isn't just talking about a vacation for Ruth. In fact, she's talking about anything but that. What Naomi's talking about here is she's talking about finding Ruth a husband. That's the kind of rest that she's talking about here, rest of a husband and a home. But then she says that it may go well with you. What does she mean when she says that it may go well with you? Well, she's talking about Ruth having a child, Ruth having an heir. See, this was a colloquialism. This is a a phrase that was commonly used in the day that if you were pregnant or if you were seeking to become pregnant, you were seeking for it to go well with you. As I read this, I'm reminded of my eighth grade U.S. history class with Coach Good was my teacher. And I can remember him teaching us on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and telling us that the pursuit of happiness was buying property and asking, well, why didn't they just say that, right? Just say what you mean. And yet here, that's what we find here. Ruth has been kind to Naomi. And so Naomi wants to return the kindness. And so she's looking for a husband who can give Ruth children. Now look at verse two. We're going to read down to verse four. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So here we have Naomi's plan. Boaz, this redeemer, this kinsman redeemer, he has the right to marry Ruth should he choose to do it. And so after the harvest, Boaz would be at the threshing floor. He would be winnowing out his harvest, meaning that he would be separating the wheat and the chaff. And so the the threshing floor, it was a place uh, to the east of the city with a a hard surface that would have been shared by all of the farmers of the day. And they would uh, take uh, take their harvest and they would pull it off and they would put it into these bowls or sometimes into a fabric. And they would, at the evening time, as the winds came in from the west, they would uh, throw their throw their harvest up and the chaff would blow away and the grain would fall to the ground. Now this threshing floor, it had to be clean and it had to be hard uh, because they wanted the grain to fall to the ground and not be in dirt or other debris, but be able to, to sweep it up and gather it easily so that then they could use it. And so Naomi, she knows that Boaz is gonna be there. He's gonna be at the threshing floor He's gonna be there in the evening because that's when the winds blow in. And so she instructs Ruth with three things really that I think are really important when looking for a husband. First, she says, bathe, right? Uh, Then she says, anoint yourself with oil, put on some perfume. And then she says, put on a cloak and go and wait. She says, bathe, because at this point, uh, Ruth would have been working in the field for weeks and weeks and weeks. And there's no telling when the last time she had had a bath. She's to anoint herself with oil to smell good, but also this was a, a, common, a common way to prove that you were looking for a husband and that you were interested in the one that you were with. And then she tells her to put on a cloak. 
Now this cloak, it's not like a dress or a robe or something like that. It's really more of just kind of like a jacket to, uh, to keep herself warm. Now the next part of the plan, it almost sounds sensual. Verse four says, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Now this is important because it was common for farmers of the day when they were at the threshing floor, when their harvest was at the threshing floor, they would sleep near their harvest so that it wasn't stolen. And so what this means is that the threshing floor, it wasn't just Boaz who would have been asleep there. It wasn't just one farmer or two farmers. This would have been the entire community of farmers would have been sleeping. Their men would have been sleeping there around their grain. And so Naomi says, she says, first observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. Every day this week, I had someone in conversation or emails or whatever it may be ask me, what are you going to do with Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet? Right? Because this is strange. Right? It's weird to us. It feels strange. I told the first service, if I had a dollar for every person who asked me that this week, I could buy a Happy Meal. Right? Uh, uh, it sounds weird and it almost feels sensual, but that's not what's happening at all. In fact, notice Ruth's response. She trusts her mother-in-law way more than I would in this situation. She says, all that you say, I will do. In other words, she says, yes, ma'am, I'll go uncover his feet if that's what you tell me to do. And so why does Naomi tell her to do this? Why does Naomi tell her to go and to uncover Boaz's feet? Well, there's a few different ways that commentators have understood this passage. There's really kind of four. The first way, and my personal favorite, is they just ignore it and act like it isn't there, right? They just act like it's completely normal and that this, uh, we should just understand what's happening. But really, there's three serious ways uh, that this passage can be understood. So first, it could be understood that Naomi tells Boaz, or tells Ruth, to uncover Boaz's feet and throw herself at his feet is a sign of total dependence, right? Throwing herself at his, at his feet shows that, that Ruth is completely dependent on Boaz, that she needs him to survive. The, the second option is there some commentators who believe that this was actually a common way for a woman to propose marriage to a man that she would go and she would uncover his feet. And this was a a sign saying that I I want to marry you, that I need you. The third option is a a little less sophisticated and it's that Naomi told Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet so that the wind would wake him up as it blew by. That it would startle him and it would uh, would bring him up, it would wake him up. Uh, Now, I think... I don't think that we have to choose just one. I think really the best way to read the evidence and the the best way to understand what's happening here is that it's some kind of mixture of all three, right? That that Ruth is uncovering Boaz's feet, one, is a sign of humility, right? That she is a widow in need of a redeemer. She is helpless, but that Boaz can help her. And so what is more humbling than than not kissing him on the forehead or kissing him on the cheek or whatever it may be, but uncovering his feet. And it very well could be a sign of asking for his hand in marriage. And obviously it would wake him up as the wind blows. And so I don't think that it's really all that complicated. It could be any one of those and probably a mixture of all of them. And so this is exactly what Ruth does. She goes she uncovers his feet and she waits. This is a strange plan in many ways, right? Wouldn't it have been easier to just ask Boaz to come over and to have a a cup of coffee or a a glass of Coke Zero for the sophisticated and, uh, and to just talk with him about, hey, you're the redeemer, I need to be redeemed, let's get married. But Naomi, she, she crafts this plan and she's convinced that the Lord is at work. She's convinced that it wasn't an accident that they came back to Bethlehem. She's convinced that it wasn't an accident that they have ended up gleaning in Boaz's field. She's convinced that it isn't an accident that Boaz has been as kind to Ruth as he has been. And so because of that, because she sees God's sovereignty and God's providence at work, it doesn't call her, it doesn't cause her, it doesn't drive her to sit down. Instead, it motivates her to engage in what it appears the Lord is doing in her life. 
to engage in what it appears the Lord is doing in this situation. She understands that that meeting Boaz wasn't an accident, where they find themselves wasn't an accident, that God had brought them here for a reason. And so for Naomi and for Ruth, God's sovereignty, it wasn't an excuse for laziness. It was an excuse for action. See, often God guides our plans to accomplish his will. And so he allows us to be used by him to do what he is doing, what he would have done in the earth, in the world, in the way that he would have it done. And so we see that whenever we seek to honor God, he guides our plans. Next, we see this, that he uses our plans. See, God doesn't need us. He's not on the throne wringing his hands, wondering what kind of plan we will come up with next. He's not on the throne wondering if he's going to be able to use uh, what we do or if he is going to be able to react accordingly in the right ways uh, to the decisions that uh, you and I may make. Instead, our God, because he's good and he's sovereign and he's powerful, he can use our plans even as he guides our plans. Look at verse six with me. So she, being Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. So Ruth begins to execute Naomi's plan. Verse seven, when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now what's happening here is, is Boaz hasn't been partying and getting drunk and passing out. And so remember, remember the situation, right? That, that Boaz has been living through a decade-long famine. And the Lord has just provided maybe the greatest harvest that they have seen in years. And so Boaz, he's been working all night, uh, collecting his harvest. He's excited about what has happened. And so after a long day's work, after a hard day's work, he goes and he eats and he drinks and his heart is glad and he goes to sleep. You you might think of it uh, like the first Thanksgiving meal right? That at Thanksgiving, we come together and we celebrate for the way that the Lord has been kind to us, the way that the Lord has been good to us. And if you're like me, what I do at Thanksgiving is I eat as much fried turkey as I can. And I find as much macaroni and cheese as I can. And then I eat peach cobbler, and then I find a place for a long winter's nap, right? I find a place to go to sleep. This is what Boaz has done here, right? He has celebrated His heart has been merry, and he goes to sleep with a full belly. He goes to sleep, and he sleeps well. He sleeps, and Ruth acts. Look at verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, isn't it interesting here that Boaz isn't startled by Ruth? Boaz doesn't even know that Ruth is there until he rolls over. This is why I think probably one of the strongest ways to understand what's happening when Ruth uncovers Boaz's feet is that she's doing it so that the cold air will wake him up. Have you ever, maybe you've gone to sleep at night and you've woken up in the middle of the night because the cold air has hit you? This has never happened to me, but I have a friend who sometimes when he goes to sleep, his wife will steal the blankets from him in the middle of the night, right? And and he'll wake up cold and and he'll have to wake up and and roll over and pull the blankets back over. And that might've happened to you. I I don't know. I've never experienced it. Uh, But uh, this is what's happened to Boaz, right? Boaz, he wakes up. The cold air is hitting his feet. And so he turns over to figure out where has his cloak gone. And he rolls over and to his great surprise, what does he find? He didn't find a cloak. He finds a woman, right? Now talk about a way to wake up in the middle of the night, right? Boaz goes to sleep with a full belly, rolls over and he sees a woman laying at his feet. There's gotta be some questions running through his mind. In fact, the way that this is written, if you look there at verse eight, it says, behold, a woman laid his feet. That word behold, the author's using that to show the surprise and the the startling that had happened, the amazement that he had gone to sleep, there was no woman, he wakes up and there is a woman. And then in verse nine, we have the peak of the story. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. 
Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, Boaz asked a normal, regular, ordinary question, right? If you woke up and there's a strange person lying next to you, first question, right? Who are you? Then why are you here? Now, the way Ruth answers, the way she responds, is really important for us to understand what she's doing. So we can think about it in kind of two two sections. So first, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Boaz wakes up confused. Ruth decides, this is the time for me to shoot my shot, right? This is the time for me uh, to see if he will say yes. So he says, who are you? And she calls herself his servant. Now, the word she uses, it's not slave, but it's maidservant. And a maidservant was one who uh, had all of the rights and privileges of an Israelite household living in the household. In fact, a maidservant could be taken as a wife and could give birth to an heir. And so here she says, I am your servant. But what's interesting about this, if we were to flip back to chapter 13 of Ruth 2, you would see where she explicitly says, I am not your servant. Something's changed. Look at verse 13 in chapter 2. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So in chapter two, she has said, I'm not one of your servants. And now she's saying, I am one of your servants. I, I am one of your household. She's, there's been a change in status. She no longer identifies as a Moabite or as a foreigner. Instead, she identifies as a maidservant. Next, she gives Boaz some instructions. She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this idea of spreading wings over your servant, this was a common way to talk about marriage. We see this in Ezekiel. It literally means to spread your garment over me. It was a a common euphemism for marriage. But what's interesting about this is this is also the way that Boaz had spoken about Ruth coming to take refuge in Yahweh. So look at verse 12 of chapter two. She says, the Lord repay you for, or Boaz says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz earlier has told Ruth, that you have come, blessed be you, because you've come to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh. And now Ruth is telling Boaz to spread his wings over her. See, what Ruth is asking Boaz to do is to become a picture of the Lord's covenant love to her. In fact, this is what marriage has really always been about. Marriage has always been about a picture of God's covenant love. Even today, Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, a picture of the way God has loved his bride. So what this means, husbands, for you, uh, is that if you are a father, then the first picture that your children see of the way that Jesus has loved them is the way that you love your wife. And wives, what this means is that the first picture that your children see of the way that you are to love Jesus is the way that you love your husband. Now, husbands, don't think that that means that you are Jesus because that is not what it means, right? Uh, this, this is a picture, right? It's a picture of what Christ has done and how he has loved us and how we are to love him. And so Ruth says here, she says, Boaz, I want you to become a picture of what Yahweh has done for me. I want you to become a picture of his covenant love that has come after me. Uh, Verse 10, Boaz responds. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz responds and he's flattered, right? He, he's, not, he's not irritated. This isn't an imposition. It's a, a kindness. He says that, the, that this kindness is greater than the first kindness. The first kindness that he's talking about is the way that Ruth has loved Naomi. 
that she has come back with Naomi on the journey back to Bethlehem. She's cared for Naomi. She's provided for Naomi. But he says this second kindness, this last kindness is greater than the first. And why is it greater? He says, because you haven't gone after a young man. You've come after me right? You haven't gone after someone who is maybe more attractive or maybe more reasonable to be a potential father, but instead you have come to me. And so he doesn't, he doesn't hesitate to accept. He, in fact, he says, Ruth, you're a worthy woman and all of the townsmen know it. Now we've already seen this phrase, worthy man, worthy woman. If you were to jump back to chapter two, verse one, there, the narrator, he tells us that Boaz is a worthy man. He's a man of high character and high integrity. And now he says here, he says, Ruth, we know that you are a worthy woman. You're a woman of high integrity, of high value, of, of high character. But there's a problem. The problem is that there is a kinsman who is nearer than him. Now, a kinsman redeemer, just to remind you what that is, a kinsman redeemer was a system set up by the Lord in the Old Testament law where if a, if a family member died, then other family members could step in and could marry his wife could take his property and provide for his family. And the way that it worked is that the nearer relative had, for lack of a better term, the first right of refusal. And so if uh, there's two brothers and one brother has a wife and children and he dies and the other brother, uh, he can decide to marry the wife and the children and provide for them, or uh, he can refuse and he can let that responsibility go to the next closest relative and the next closest relative and, and on and on it goes. Boaz says, there's, there's a problem. There's a redeemer nearer than I. And look, at, look back at verse 13. He says, remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. See, what's interesting here is Boaz holds his plans with an open hand. Boaz has an open hand, trusting that the Lord is working. Boaz is content. He's confident to, to say, look, if if there's another redeemer who, who wants to redeem you, then that's great. That means that the Lord has a different plan for me. He, he holds his plans loosely. And that's really how we have to hold our plans as well, right? That we make these great plans. Maybe you've got your life mapped out in front of you. Maybe you've got the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years mapped out in front of you. But what we're called to is not to hold that plan tightly as if we have the wisdom of the Lord, but instead to hold those plans loosely, understanding that the Lord might have a plan that is better than your plan, right? We do this individually, but then we also do this collectively. We also do this corporately. Yeah, uh, Central is walking through something similar right now. Uh, if you are on our email list, then you got an email this week letting you know that on Easter Sunday, we're going to three services as Pastor Reed talked about at 8.30, uh, 10, and 11.30. But what you saw in that email is that we're gonna keep that schedule. So we're gonna keep three services moving forward. So the week after Easter, we're gonna have 8.30, 10, and 11.30, and on and on it goes. And the reason we're doing that isn't simply because uh, we need more seats. I mean, if you look around this room, uh, there are seats. If you have been in our 930 service, uh, then there are less seats, but there's still some room. Uh, but what we've done is the Lord has been kind to us. He's provided growth uh, here at Central. We're reaching new friends. We're reaching new neighbors and new people are coming, which I am thrilled about. If you're new, man, we are excited that you are here and we're trying to make more room. But the biggest problem that we have right now is that on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock, we don't have any parking spots left. Uh, so we have more chairs than we have parking spots. And so uh, over the last several weeks, we've been wrestling through, all right, what do we do? Uh, we can't create more parking spots. We, uh, we talked about building a parking garage, but that seemed excessive, right? And so uh, we started talking about what can we do to to create more parking. Uh, and as we talked with uh, different leadership and got uh, more wisdom, we quickly realized that the, the best thing for us to do uh, to solve this problem, at, at least in the near term, uh, is to go to a third service. Now, I'll be honest with you, we've been talking about this and wrestling with this uh, really since the middle of February. 
trying to figure out what are we going to do. And what I've been telling people since we made the decision to go to three services is that we have this problem and I'm 98% sure that we have to do something and I'm 90% sure that this third service is the right answer. And I was thinking about that and I was wrestling with that and then I was in a conversation with uh, another pastor and he said this. He said, if you are always 100% on every decision you make, then you are not leading and you are not walking by faith. You've got to hold your plans lightly. And so it, it's our intention to go to this third service, but we're going to hold our plans lightly. And if we need to make a change, if we realize, hey, these aren't the right service times or this isn't the right thing, then we're not gonna hesitate to say, hey, the Lord is leading us in a different direction, right? The Lord is leading us uh, to do something different. So we wanna, uh, we get a couple of wins out of this decision. One, we get more parking spaces, uh, but two, uh, we get more capacity for more people to invite and to come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and so what we see is that when we seek to honor God, that he, he guides our plans and he uses our plans and then finally, we see this, that he provides our need. He provides our need. We, we can make the best plans, but at the end of the day, it is God who provides for our needs. Now, if, as you read through Ruth chapter three, maybe you read it this week before, uh, before coming in here today, there is a tinge of uncertainty. As you read Naomi's plan, at least as I'm reading it, I'm wondering, is this gonna work? And as Ruth is executing the plan, I'm wondering, is this going to work? And then it looks like it's going to work, but what happens? Boaz says, there's one problem. There's a redeemer nearer than I. There's a redeemer nearer than me. And so there's, there's this uncertainty, right? Naomi sounds confident, but we're still left wondering. Ruth and Boaz sound hopeful, but there's still this obstacle in the uncertainty, Boaz, he, he wants to provide for Ruth and Naomi. So look at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now at the end of verse 13, he is told, he's told Ruth, hey, lay down, go to sleep. I'll get an answer on this redeemer in the morning. And then here in verse 14, he says that she wakes up before you could recognize anyone. And he says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. See, what he's doing here is he's attempting to protect Ruth's dignity and reputation. He invites her to sleep there in verse 13 to protect her from the danger of the night. Remember, this is a dangerous time uh, for women to travel alone or uh, to walk alone. This is the time of the judges. But then they wake up early so that she can leave before anyone sees. But here's the thing. They wake up early so that she can leave, not because of their guilt, but to protect her from what did not happen. Remember, this threshing floor would have been covered by other men, by other farmers, by other workers. And so he wants Ruth to wake up early and leave before anyone sees her so that there will not be any talk in the town that that Ruth, who we thought was a worthy woman, isn't really all that worthy. And so in verse 15, look at what Boaz does. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured it out six measures of barley and he put it on her. Then he went into the city. He, he doesn't want her to leave empty handed. He, he wants to give her a sign that he cares for and that he loves her and that he's going to protect her and he's gonna do what he needs to do to find her a redeemer or to be the redeemer. And so he gives her six measures of barley. Today, this six measures of barley is 60 to 90 pounds of barley. And so he literally loads it on her at uh, the day that she would have either carried it on her back or on her head, and she goes home. Now in verse 16, Naomi comes back into the story, and you can imagine Naomi's waiting. Look at verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. Now put, your, put yourself in Naomi's shoes for just a minute. She has come up with this plan. Ruth has gone to execute this plan and there's no cell phones. So it's not like Ruth is texting Naomi a play-by-play, -play, right? Uh, he just laid down, right? He just ate a big sandwich. He is about to go to sleep, right? I have uncovered, right? The chicken is in the pot. Like he, she, doesn't, she doesn't do that, 
Right? You can't do that. So Naomi is waiting, wanting to know what is happening. When is she coming back? She should have been back by now. Why isn't she back? So you can imagine all of these things are running through Naomi's mind. And so when she gets back, she asks this question. How did you fare, my daughter? Now, this question is literally the same question that was asked by Boaz in verse nine. Who are you? So if we were to literally translate this, what verse 16 says, the question she asks is, who are you, my daughter? Now, why would she ask, who are you, my daughter? Naomi wants to know if the plan worked. In other words, she wants to know, is Ruth still a Moabite? Is she still a foreigner? Is she still a servant? Or has her status changed? Has she become Boaz's wife? Verses 17 and 18, we, we get a, an abbreviated version, a summary, but there's one key detail that's added in. Verse 17 saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now we didn't read that in the first section, but now we read it here that the reason Boaz gave this barley is he didn't want Ruth to return home to Naomi empty-handed. See, in this picture, what we have is we have Boaz in a veiled way telling Naomi and by extension telling Ruth that I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. In other words, what we have is we are seeing Naomi's journey from famine to fullness. Right, remember at the end of chapter one, Naomi says, don't call me, don't call me Naomi, Naomi, which means pleasant and sweet. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me because I left full and have returned empty. And what Boaz is saying here, what he's doing is he's giving this picture, Naomi saying that you may have returned empty, but you are about to experience fullness, right? You are about to experience joy. You are about to see what the Lord can do. Now notice how the chapter ends. The chapter ends with uncertainty. Look at verse 18. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi has planned, Ruth has executed, Boaz is agreeable, but there is still uncertainty because there's this nearer kinsman redeemer. One of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible doesn't sugarcoat life, right? We might expect chapter three to end and they lived happily ever after. But instead, what do we have? We have Naomi telling Ruth to wait. He's gonna take care of it. You can almost see the change Naomi has had before she has said, the Lord's dealt bitterly with me, so just forget about me. Now she's saying, wait, Boaz is gonna take care of it. And there's confidence in Naomi's words, right? There's confidence that, that the Lord is going to take care of her. But isn't this how life typically goes? That we make these plans. We plan out our lives. We have a picture of what our lives should look like and then unseen obstacles pop up and we're left trusting that the Lord will provide. See, maybe some of you are here today and you, you've been praying, you've been pleading that the Lord would allow you to be a mother or a father. Maybe, maybe you're here today and, and you're wondering why this perfect family that you had planned out and you even, maybe you tried to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and yet today they have walked away from the faith. And you've been praying, Lord, bring them back, Lord, save them, but you're not, you're not sure what's going to happen. Or maybe you're, you're here and you're wondering, why are you in the career that you were in? Why are you in the situation? Why are you in the place that you are in. You, you thought your career would be more advanced. You, you thought that your life would be further down the field, but it has not turned out that way. Maybe you're struggling because retirement hasn't looked like the way you thought it was going to look. Maybe you had great hopes for retirement and that just hasn't turned out. See, oftentimes life is lived in uncertainty. Life is lived in these seasons of wondering. And here's the truth of the Bible, that we might not understand how it will work out, but God is faithful and he is working it out. 
right? That if you are in Christ, if you've trusted Christ to save you, then there is nothing in this world that the Lord means to harm you. There's nothing in this world that the Lord means to come against you. Instead, what the Lord is doing is he is working something in you and through you that you might not understand in the next 10 days or in the next 10 weeks or in the next 10 months or in the next 10 years, but that at some point in eternity, you will understand, we will understand that the suffering was all worth it because God was always faithful, right? That through it all, God was working, God was doing something, and as painful as it was now, it was all worth it in the end. Now, maybe, maybe you haven't trusted Christ. Maybe you're walking apart from Christ. Maybe you've yet to come to that place where you trust in him for his grace. Well, could it be that the Lord is working in you to teach you that that wave that throws you against the rock, that that rock that it's throwing you against is the rock of ages, right? That that rock that it's throwing you against is God who is there and who is waiting for you to trust him. He's waiting for you to believe in him, to give your life to him. See, in Boaz, we see a brilliant picture of God's grace. Look at all that Boaz has done. He's changed Ruth's status from foreigner and Moabite to servant and daughter. He's loved her as his own, and he's given her hope for the future. See, Boaz is a picture of Jesus. We might say like this, that Jesus is the true and better, the greater Boaz. See, Jesus has changed our status from sinner and rebel to saint. He's loved us as his own. He's adopted us. And so now we are, as Paul says, co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ Jesus. So what that means is whatever's true of Jesus is true of me, right? Whatever Jesus gets, I get. And he's given us a better future than Boaz could ever dream. Boaz secures Ruth and Naomi's future for the moment. Jesus secures our future for eternity. And so even as we see this great picture of grace in Boaz, we need to remember that there is a greater Boaz and his name is Jesus. That God has sent Jesus to be all that Boaz was pointing us to. See, God's sovereignty is not an excuse for our laziness. What this means is that we can plan knowing that God works. We can plan knowing that God works and we can hold our plans with loose hands, trusting that God is going to use and to guide and to work our plan in ways that we cannot imagine. Right, that even the plans that we produce, even the the plans that we provide, that they are, when we bring them to the Lord, that they are guided by him. Right, that he is using those plans in ways that only he can. If you've been following Jesus for any time at all, then you know what it's like to come up with what your life is going to look like, to come up with something you're gonna do, come up with something that you are going to say, and you execute that plan, and it didn't go any way that you expected. And yet the Lord blessed you beyond measure. The Lord worked in ways that you could not understand and you did not expect. See, God's sovereignty is an excuse for our laziness. And so we keep working, we keep acting because the Lord is using us to accomplish his purpose in the world. But here's what else maybe you need to know about God's sovereignty. Maybe, Maybe God's sovereignty has brought you here today to this place. Right, the, the reason that you are in the season that you are in is because God is sovereignly and according to his perfect plan has brought you to that place. He's brought you to that season. Or maybe just in a more tangible way, the reason that you are in this room today is because God has sovereignly decided that you would be in this room, that he has come after you. So if you are in this room today and you've yet to trust Jesus, then what you need to know is that you may not be coming after Jesus, but Jesus is coming after you. Right, that he is coming for you and he has brought you to this place so that you could encounter him, you could know his grace that he won for you on the cross, that because Jesus died on the cross, you don't have to be punished for your sin. 
Because Jesus died on the cross, I don't take the penalty that my sin deserves. Instead, Jesus dies on the cross taking my sin, and as he takes my sin and my shame, he gives me his righteousness. He gives me his victory. He gives me his glory. But Jesus didn't just die on a cross. He was buried, and he rose three days later. And when he rose from the grave, he proved that a sacrifice had been acceptable to the Father. And now, because Jesus' sacrifice has been acceptable, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, it's not that they might be saved, it's that they will be saved, right? That Jesus does save. And so if you have yet to trust Jesus, then I have to believe that the reason that our sovereign God has worked his sovereign plan to place you here today is so that you could meet this Jesus. At the end of the service, we're gonna sing. At the end of the service, we'll have, our next steps team will be down front. They would love to talk with you and pray with you. If maybe you don't want to walk to the front, you can go to our next steps table, right out these doors. You'll see the green banners. And there's people there who are ready to talk with you and pray with you. They're looking forward to talking and praying with you. In fact, they have already been praying for you. This morning, they were praying for those who they would get to talk with today and those they would get to pray with today. So if that's you, know this, you've already been prayed for. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, thank you for your sovereign plan that is not an excuse for us, uh, for our laziness, but instead is an opportunity for us to be used by you and for us to work in ways that we do not expect. For us to work in ways that we, we might not anticipate, for us to be used by you in ways that we couldn't imagine. And Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for bringing us into this room at this time for this moment. And so Father, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who have been following you, but they're struggling to know that your plan is good and that you're sovereign. They're, they're praying for that Luke 2 and that Luke 3, that Ruth 2 and Ruth 3 experience where where they see your hand guiding them. But Lord, maybe they're in Ruth 1 right now. And maybe they're feeling like they have been left empty. Father, I pray they would know your grace and your goodness today. Father, I pray for those who, who are here this morning and who've never tasted and seen that you're good. Who've never given their, their hearts and their lives to you, but instead if have tried to run from you and do it on their own. Lord, I pray that your sovereign power would overcome their will and that you would save them even now. Lord, I pray that the song that we're about to sing, that your mercy is more, that it would be the heartbeat of everyone in this room. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.